Hey everyone, welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. It is a Monday, July 17th, and boy, this is going to be one heck of an earnings week. Not only do we have Tesla coming up, that's obviously going to be a big one on the 19th, so mark your calendar for that right after the bell on Wednesday the 19th. In two days from now, we'll be getting Tesla earnings. Obviously, massive expectations here, not only for what are Tesla margins going to look like, especially since many of those price cuts came in that second quarter, but also... What are we going to see in terms of Tesla's free cash flow number? We're going to be paying attention to this and a lot more. On Tuesday, we'll be getting Bank of America, a Charles Schwab, a Morgan Stanley before the bell. Uh, we'll be getting JB Hunt Interactive Brokers after the bell. Wednesday, we'll get Ally, ASML, Baker Hughes, Goldman Sachs. Uh, as well as, of course, uh, in the after hours, a Tesla, uh, as well as Netflix and United Airlines, which tend to be some good, uh, le well, at least Netflix tends to be a good harbinger usually of what tech uh, uh, stocks will perform like after earnings. So we'll see. So far, bank earnings have been looking pretty good. I will also get a DR Horton home builder on Thursday, uh, which uh, obviously with how uh, little there is in the real estate market uh, to buy, a lot of folks thinking we should see record profits from home builders. But the question is, are there record amounts of buyers for these new homes? And so uh, that'll also be interesting to see some commentary on. Keep in mind, real estate inventory and supply dynamics are not solely driven by what is available on the market. It could also be fewer buyers, which could affect your equilibrium. So we'll pay attention to all of this. Now, a uh, big deal, obviously, today as well is that uh, the uh, Treasury yield for the 10-year is back below 3.8%. Some of this, as well as some red getting started here in the pre-market with the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ down 26.16 at six basis points, respectively potentially due to what we're seeing with uh, the canceling of the deal between Russia and Ukraine for Russia to permit uh, wheat exports. Uh, this, of course, has a lot of folks, once again, looking at the WEAT ETF, which is up 5% uh, in the pre-market. That's your wheat ETF. Take a look at on screen here. You can actually see that ETF. And if you go out to the week chart, you can see the explosion of a movement that you had uh, during the invasion of uh, Ukraine. And uh, it gives you a good perspective of how we've essentially come down half uh, from, from the peak of invasion. But uh, we generally sit around that $5, $6 range. And uh, that's roughly where we are now. So some folks enthusiastic that maybe wheat prices will rise again, given this uh, canceling of the deal between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, downsides to this are uh, food inflation risks, given that a substantial uh, amount of wheat does travel out of Ukraine, 75% of that through the Black Sea. So those uh, wheat exports uh, being held up by Russia without potentially finding another path could be uh, relatively critical. However, I don't think that uh, many expect the kind of uh, combined inflation that we saw at the beginning of 2022 when the invasion occurred, given that uh, we had many other inflationary dynamics present at the time rather than simply food inflation. That's to minimize the importance of food, obviously, but it's unlikely this will change the disinflationary trend that we're on, but it'll be something also 
to pay attention to. Uh, as well as, obviously, our strikes. We're, of course, getting closer to our strikes. And you've got folks like Bloomberg suggesting that, hey, five-year break-evens may end up trending higher. really want to pay attention to break-evens, especially based on some correlation with the oil market. They think there's a chance break-evens could go up again. Uh, you know, I find personally that break-evens are pretty darn volatile. They're down today, 2.14. Uh, but the trend has been very positive so far. So let's knock on wood that that trend continues. Uh, that'll be our path towards rate cuts. So uh, now I think uh, something that uh, we ought to do is just do a little bit of a, ooh, let me see, hold on, actually. Let's do a quick look to see what kind of eco data we have today outside of earnings today and uh, really this, um, this week. So today we're going to get the Empire Manufacturing read. We'll actually get that in about two and a half minutes. We'll get uh, retail sales tomorrow. Uh, that'll be uh, that'll be useful for evaluating how that consumer is continuing. Any kind of big miss here could uh, restart uh, some fears of a recession in the United States economy, which lately have really been uh, subsiding, which is obviously great. Ideally, an economy that doesn't go into recession is an economy that can keep chugging along, unlike, of course, China where you just had, uh, unfortunately, growth miss for China again, coming in at just a 0.8% GDP growth in the last, uh, uh, in the last month, sorry, in the last quarter. Uh, that, uh, uh, in the quarter, gives you an annualized rate of just 3.2%. Most thought that uh, China would end up seeing their GDP contract from about 8% to 5.1 or 5%. So seeing an annualized read coming in at 3.2 versus 5, not ideal for China. It reiterates that the problems in China are likely uh, more salient than expected. So uh, we've got that Empire Manufacturing coming out in 90 seconds, so we'll go through that. Uh, I will also cover what's going on with uh, some of the latest crypto uh, commentary from the judge in the Coinbase versus uh, the SEC lawsuit. Uh, so we'll pay attention to that. Or I guess we should say SEC versus Coinbase, get the order correct. And uh, we'll go through that in a moment as well, as well as doing a, a little bit of a Tesla earnings preview. So we'll go through that. Uh, then, uh, then, of course, uh, let's see here. The uh, next big caddies are going to be after retail sales. Uh, we'll also get industrial production on the 18th. Business inventories on the 18th, that's all tomorrow. Housing starts building permits and uh, mortgage applications come out Wednesday the 19th. We get jobless claims again on Thursday and then on Friday, we'll get some uh, uh, economic uh, surveys for uh, sentiment. But beyond that, uh, not major data sets this week. We will obviously look for the Federal Reserve next week on the uh, 26th. That's also when we've got the expiration for the coupon for the programs on Building Your Wealth and the lifetime access to not only those programs, but the course member live streams where we do fundamental analysis on almost every single day we have uh, the market open. All right, Empire Manufacturing should be out now. Okay, here it is. Oh, of course, it comes in at 1.1. The expectation was negative 3.5. Prior read was 6.6. .6. So we're obviously down from the prior read on manufacturing. However, this is not 
as bad as feared, which is fantastic because that again means we're avoiding this uh, uh, this this recessionary pull. Let me see if I could get the actual Empire Manufacturing. It's a, it's a New York read. Uh, and let's see if we can get the read here uh, and, and uh, get the actual report. But uh, again, this is a beat uh, survey. Let's see, get it. Empire State Manufacturing, again, beat in a manufacturing survey is uh, going to help once again reiterate that we're not trending towards a recession, so I like to see this. I don't believe this is going to be horribly market moving, yet another beat, but let's take a peek. Uh, maybe maybe a slight little green candle there on the NASDAQ could be attributed in pre-market to this beat, but uh, doesn't. it might take a little longer to digest. Let's see if I can get the full report here. Come on, New York Fed. Ah, uh, here we go. Okay, yeah. So let's get the uh, full report on manufacturing. All right, here it is. Empire State Manufacturing out with a beat, coming in with a 1.1 read uh, instead of a contraction. Business activity held steady in New York State. Empire Manufacturing, by the way, yes, it is New York State, but it is a, a, a tool that people like to look at nationwide. The headline general business conditions index fell six points to 1.1, again, lower than that prior read. New orders inched up and shipments expanded. Delivery timeframes shortened and inventories continued to decline. Okay, this inventories declining is actually somewhat of a good thing. You want to start seeing inventory sell through in an economy that's functioning well. Even though the nice buildup of inventory can be useful to prevent supply chain shortages, if you have too much inventory buildup, you generally don't see inventory replenishment. And if you don't see inventory replenishment, a big piece of GDP is missing. And that's how you could trend closer to a recession. So you want to see inventories actually being sold and processed through the economy. Employment levels edged higher. Of course they did. Although the average work week was little changed. Input and selling price increases continued to moderate. This is fantastic, folks. Absolutely fantastic. This is what we want to do. We want to continue to see moderation in prices. So far, all of this is fantastic. What we're saying is, yes, it is slower than we had in the prior report, but it is much better than, uh, than expected. Less delivery timeframes tells us less inflationary pressure. Input and selling price increases continuing to moderate. Again, less inflationary pressure. All at the same time is suggesting the economy is actually uh, moving stronger than expected. Once again, same thing that we're seeing in, uh, in most of the uh, producer survey reports. Less inflation and a stronger reports than expected for the United States. Obviously, in contrast to China, uh, you're you're not doing as well in China. You're getting uh, uh, you're getting substantially softer reads than expected across the board. What else do we have? Looking ahead, while firms expect conditions to improve, optimism remained muted. Oh, interesting. So uh, the way to look at this really is uh, uh, sentiment really hasn't gone. 100% bullish here. We see this in some of the University of Michigan data as well, where we start, we're starting to see a, a spike in sentiment, but usually for manufacturing sentiment to lift, you have to see more consistent selling through of that excess inventory. So, excuse me, sometimes uh, the sentiment of a manufacturing industry can be a lag lagging indicator, which 
reasonably makes sense, right? Manufacturing would be a little bit more optimistic after actually receiving orders. Activity holds steady. Manufacturing activity, little changed in New York State. General business conditions fell to 1.1. 29% of respondents reported conditions had improved month over month, while 27 indicated that conditions had worsened. That's pretty even. New orders index, little changed, indicating orders edged higher. Shipments were at 13.4, pointing to an increase in shipments, although at a slower increase of pace than last month. Negative 8.8 .8 unfilled orders index remained negative for a third straight month, a sign that unfilled orders continued to decline. It's good. We, we want less inventory or um, less unfilled orders anyway, less uh, uh, supply chain pressures and uh, or economic you know, qualms. Price increases continue to moderate. Good. We, we read that already, but let's see if they have any extra comments here. Uh, the prices paid index fell five points to 16.7, and prices received index fell five points to 3.9. Prices paid index has now fallen nearly 50 points over the past year, and the prices received index has fallen a cumulative 27 points. Great. And then we've got the muted optimism, mostly because capital spending uh, is, still, uh, is still on the relatively soft side. So that's Empire Manufacturing for y'all. Let's see a few of these diffusion charts here. General business conditions. Looks like, I mean, ideally, if we can get above the line here, we're a little bit more positive. But boy, things have been so negative uh, going to the second half of last year. New orders. You see a lot of volatility here. Shipments, unfilled orders, delivery times. This collapse in delivery times is fantastic. Prices paid. This is very similar to the uh, CPI charts that we're seeing. Prices received, same thing, fantastic. Number of employees, wow, look at this actual like dip here in uh, what looks like February, March, but then a recovery. And that's actually another pressure set on the economy that, well, wait a minute, if we can actually continue to lead people to be hired and not necessarily create a wage price spiral, then that's positive pressure on the economy. Uh, that keeps people in the capability of spending. This is fantastic. Average work week, uh, recovering a little bit, fantastic. Uh, a, a lot of these really here, I have to say, are relatively optimistic. It's it's hard for me to see something here that uh, that suggests we're we're looking at uh, a bad report. So very good. Happy about the uh, Empire Manufacturing report again. Yet another indicator that the economy is doing stronger uh, than expected. Uh, of course, uh, sometimes we get these reports and uh, markets are actually unhappy because they're waiting for the Fed to really pause on uh, Fed rate hikes. And uh, the thesis is, well, how could we have a pause on rate hikes if uh, we're in a situation where the economy continues to boom? Well, I think there's that balance there, where as long as inflation comes down, Fed can stay relatively stable at their inflation, uh, or sorry, their uh, FOMC rate, which let's take a look at the futures monitor for that, and uh, and potentially crimp out inflation without causing a recession. Keep in mind that even after the CPI and PPI reports, we are still expecting that 25 BP hike, and right now the market is pricing in a 96.7% chance that uh, next week, Wednesday, we will be getting another 25 basis point hike. Uh, we are pricing in an 85.5% chance thereafter of remaining essentially steady at uh, 5.25. So it sounds like 
one more and done uh, for the Federal Reserve is relatively confirmed by markets at this point, which many argue it's not even markets confirming that, it's just straight up the Fed who told us that. All right, good. So that gives us Empire Manufacturing. All right, let's, uh, let's see here. Uh, I don't think China's doing QE in the sense of buying bonds, but they're... Okay, so talk about China. China, everybody's been looking at China to say, hey, where's the stimulus? Hasn't really been coming as hard and fast as people expected, but that's China for you. They did the same thing during COVID too. They like raining money on companies, not on people. Uh, and when they do, it's much more muted than what you get in uh, or got in America. All right. Now, let's go ahead and do a... Uh, Tesla, uh, let's see here, Tesla, Tesla, Tesla piece, all right, stand by, let's go to 1640, Tesla, all right, and let's go over here, sorry, give me another 10 seconds here so I can get this property prepared, silly Kevin. All right, here we go. Okay. Well, it's time for a preview on what to expect for Tesla earnings coming up on July 19th. I will be covering the Tesla earnings live, so I hope you join me there. Keep in mind, next coupon expiration is next Wednesday on FOMC Day. Join me, get lifetime access to all the content, new content, and the course member live streams linked down below on either stocks, real estate, or how to make more money in entrepreneurship or at your job featuring our AI lectures linked down below to actually be productive. So let's talk Tesla. Look, as much as people like to sit and crunch, okay, we delivered this many cars and that's going to lead to X dollars of revenue. Let's make this very simple. This is the quarter Tesla took some of the most price cuts that we have seen in the last, well, really year. Most of them happened at the beginning of this quarter. So there are some real concerns about obviously number one, margin. But it's not just number one margin, it's also cash flow. And this is something that I have religiously been warning about in every single Tesla video that I've been making. I've warned that Tesla's balance sheet is not as robust as it appears. That is okay though. It's a manufacturing company. They must invest. Consider, for example, the manufacturing expenditures that a company like Intel undertakes just so they can build fabs to manufacture advanced chips. They're going to be receiving some of the first three nanometer lithography machines from ASML. They'll probably have their machine up and running before even TSM, which could potentially be a nice reboot for Intel uh, as their revenue sort of declines on the CPU side and gets more into uh, sort of brand agnostic fabs. Point is, when it comes to manufacturing, you have to spend a lot of money investing. And this is what you want for a company. But don't be surprised if Tesla actually and potentially goes cash flow negative this quarter. Partly because we might be at either last quarter was the bottom in margin, or more likely this quarter may be the bottom in margin for Tesla. A bottom read in margin is going to create some nervousness for Tesla investors, especially if that free cash flow number goes negative. Take a look at the last earnings update from Q1 free cash flow declined from somewhere over $1.8 billion in prior quarters 
to just $400 million. Now, $400 million is great, but if you couple that with the potential for declining margin, you might end up going negative on free cash flow. And I've been warning that Tesla is very likely to end up raising money. Now, what I thought was very interesting is there's uh, some commentary that uh, Tesla is making another attempt at pricing in an asset-backed bond sale. Uh, this is something that they wanted to do last year, raise about a billion dollars to an asset-backed bond sale. And really what they're trying to do is securitize their leases. Now, some people think that Tesla is going to try to get into uh, you know the, more of their, their, their own uh, financing opportunities, uh, specifically with direct financing offers for customers. Uh, and uh, uh, what I believe is really happening when I look at this $1 billion suggested lease securitization offering is in English, Tesla's like, yo, y'all, we need to raise a little money. How can we raise a little money without diluting the shareholders since we put them through hell over the last year? Thanks in part to Elon dumping $24 billion, which was still $9 billion more than what retail sold. What could we do? Well, how about we take all these assets that we have, which are leases, providing us residual income. And why don't we take those leases and try to slice them up or the equity in them essentially and raise money with those. This is sort of a, an explanation. It's not actually what's happening, but it's an explanation for essentially what is backing these bonds. It's leases. So Tesla is kind of like breaking a piggy bank saying, okay, let's raise money based on the fact that we have this recurring revenue here through leases and we have these as assets. Let's use that as collateral for doing a bond offering rather than maybe diluting shareholders. It's still going to lead to more debt for Tesla as it would offset some of the asset that they do have now, but they would receive that cash, which would help a lot of their building and their build outs, obviously, because where are we still building? Giga Austin. Nevada, uh, you're building out in uh, obviously Germany and now Northeast Mexico, and then potentially expansion plans for uh, Giga Shanghai, which mind you, all this talk about China stimulating and uh, trying to stimulate their economy. Personally, I believe they're likely to do what they've done historically, which is corporate welfare. In order to stimulate the economy in China, China likes to say, hey, Let's make it easier for manufacturers to build. Let's bring manufacturing to China again versus everybody trying to suggest that they want to start building in India or Vietnam, you know, Apple threatening and otherwise. Let's incentivize these corporations to stay or come back to China. I expect that, but you don't want to build that into your models for Tesla because you should always expect the unexpected. And I think what you should really expect going into uh, this next earnings report is a likely lower margin, a margin bottom, probably somewhere around 16, 17% margin. That's likely to lead to a negative cash flow read, free cash flow read. And then we get to a negative free cash flow read. We're going to couple that with this bond offering, securitizing those leases. And Tesla, look, hey, we think maybe, I would hope at least in commentary, they say that they think they've hit a bottom in margin and that they're covering their weaker cash flow this quarter with the bond offering, and they don't think they have to raise money again in the future. I highly expect Tesla to say something like that if it is true that margin has hit bottom. If margin hasn't hit bottom, well, then there are probably more issues. So, uh, now, when it comes to the balance sheet, 
which I've complained about many times on Twitter and, 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 and on YouTube. People just don't want to hear it. Whatever. I'm just going to provide it anyway. Oh, by the way, have you seen this? Look at this. Omar posted this on Twitter. Let me quickly digress here for a moment. Omar posted on Twitter, someone check on Gary and Ross to make sure they don't faint. And here's really this magazine, uh, you know, full page ad showing meet Model Y. The best selling car in the world is on display at Goodwood. Drive it yourself at tesla.com slash drive. Uh, and I quote tweeted this and I said, meet Model Y, a Elon Musk. Love it. Keep it up, Team Tesla. It's uh, true. I love it. I, I think it's awesome. Now, obviously, a lot of people in the comments are like, oh, hey, this is paying homage to the fact that, yes, you, Kevin, uh, went to the shareholder meeting and convinced Elon Musk to advertise, which is great. Uh, I, I'm very happy uh, Tesla took the suggestion. Many people have been making the suggestion, so I credit the entire community. Uh, but it is kind of cool. Who knows if there's a correlation? Just wanted to say, even though I digress, I think it's kind of cool. And I think it's got a good ring to it. Personally, if I could give some unsolicited feedback, I don't think it would be too terrible to maybe have a little byline over here at the bottom. Just some, like, you know, cute fact bubble that you put up on every Tesla ad where you say something like, I don't know, just as an example, did you know we send software updates to, uh, you know, uh, in, increase the safety of your car on average every 27 days or, or whatever, something like that, right? Little fun facts like that, where every time somebody sees a Tesla ad, they're, it's almost like an engaging game to look at, oh, what's, what's the fun fact in that ad? And uh, it not only excites existing owners and gives them ammunition to talk about to their friends and families or whatever, but I, I think it also then becomes informative. Now, I understand the goal of this magazine ad here is to inform people that they can go test drive the vehicle, which I think is fantastic and a great way to sell the cars, get people behind the wheel of these cars. So for what it's worth, I appreciate the simplicity of the ad. Little bubble strategy could be interesting, but it's just an idea. It might be worth A-B testing, supposedly. Okay, so let's now look and understand the balance sheet here. So look, I have a unique way of looking at balance sheets because I'm very aggressive, in my opinion, with what I think of balance sheets. I think balance sheets are extremely important. Uh, they are only second important to the cash flow statement. <clears throat> cash flow statement is what I start every single fundamental analysis off with. Uh, and so cash flow is great, but we already know uh, these cash flows have been condensing and shrinking. Again, free cash flow, somewhere around 400 million bucks. Now, what do we have on that balance sheet? Because every time I talk about Tesla potentially needing to raise money, people are like, why would Tesla be raising money? They have $22 billion of cash. Oh. Yes, yes, congratulations. Somebody's able to read one line of a balance sheet. And yes, indeed, Tesla has $22 billion of cash. But good Lord, maybe one day people will actually read a little bit further down the damn balance sheet. And what do you get? Oh dear, you get accounts payable. And what do we got over here? $16 billion, we're gonna call it. Accrued liabilities, another 7.3. So let's add this up. We're gonna add it up. So we're gonna get 16 plus 7.3, quick, a little bit of rounding here. Deferred rev, we're not gonna add up. Deposits, we're not gonna add up as a liability. Current portion of debt and finance leases, we can go ahead and throw that in. That's another billy right here. 
and uh, longer term debt will ignore right now, although it has been somewhat growing. So what do we have here? We've got about 24.3 in current bills, right? So you've got $24.3 billion in bills to pay. And yes, that is offset by $22.4 billion in cash. Now, of course, then people argue, oh, but Kevin, they have inventory. Yes, and that goes into the future cash flows of the business. And so if the future cash flows of the business go negative, then that inventory isn't really helping you with your cash balance, is it? Anyway, so again, I like to be aggressive and just at a, you know, on a 20 second analysis of the balance sheet, I'll just make it clear, there are more bills on the desk than there is cash at this point. Yes as they sell more cars, hopefully that cash flow increases and we're well able to build that cash position again. We're just not there right now, especially given that capital expenditures are likely to grow. Now, I'm not a bear here. I'm just saying, just be prepared for earnings. Uh, that, you know, if we get a margin bottom and we get a negative cash flow read and we get an offering, the stock's probably not going to be very happy, especially since a lot of people are blinded by $22 billion. Oh my gosh, okay? So just, just be prepared. But this is good. You want Tesla to spend on CapEx. That's the point. It's like what I started off with, with Intel. You want capital expenditures. Very, very, very important. Uh, so... Uh, Kevin was talking to my friends who uh, have a massive Tesla, whatever, uh, seems to know uh, something about cash raising. He said, they won't look at the cash pile. They have 20 bills. Ducky Gaming, I don't really know what you're saying here, but it sounds to me like your friend's kind of given that same argument that other people argue again. It's, oh, they've got $20 billion of cash. Again, it's like, dude, you know what? If Let me put it this way, okay? Let me put it this way. If somebody today gave me a billion dollars of cash and I set a billion dollars right here and then I put an invoice doing 30 days right here of a billion dollars. Do I really have a billion dollars in cash? I mean, maybe I can invest that for the 30 days and I could try to arbitrage holding on to that cash, but let's be real. Am I a billionaire if somebody puts a billion dollars on my desk? And then I got bills of a billion dollars on the other side of this. Am I a billionaire? No. <laughs> right? Anyway. Uh, again. Okay. So, let's move on from this. Last thing that I want to say is what we want to also pay attention to is we want to look at forecasts for quarter over quarter growth rates. Okay? This is also important. So, what kind of forecasts or hints could we get? potentially for the next quarters. Right now, Wall Street thinks Tesla's only going to really be able to grow at somewhere around 25 to 32% annual compounded growth for the next few years. Your Tesla hyperbulls think that's going to be closer to 50%. And then you've got your moderates in the middle that are going to sit around, I'm usually around like 35%. Uh, and then some people are like, no, Kevin, it's 40%. It's like, okay whatever, 35 to 40%, whatever. Uh, we had in the uh, Q1 to Q2 an annualized rate of growth of about 40%. 
If you compounded that, you'd get to about 48-ish percent. I don't know, though, that we have the right indicators to suggest that we are growing uh, quarterly deliveries at 10% compounded, uh, but we are on a speed trajectory of uh, somewhere on 40% growth. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, and uh, we might not actually get any kind of guide here, so that's why I'm keeping that towards the uh, more towards the end of the uh, Tesla segment. Big fan, though, of obviously, just be prepared. Margin, cash flow, money raise, it's not a big deal. It's all totally normal for a manufacturing company. If you want, if you want to see spending, okay, you really want to see spending, why don't you jump over to the Intel report? You go to the Intel earnings report, and then you could really see some spending, a little bit of spending, maybe a lot of bit of spending. Uh, but anyway, in, Intel is, is spending a lot. Uh, let's look, for example, over here. This is the cash flow statement for Intel for the three months ending April 2023. We have net income, oh, oops, a net loss of $2.7 billion. We then jump over here to cash provided by operating activities, 1.7 to the downside. In other words, they lost about 1.7 in uh, cash from operations. So Intel's losing money from operations. They're obviously going through a big transition. A lot of people see them as either value or value trap. TBD, which happens. But look at this, folks. Additions to plant, property, and equipment, 7.4 billies. Imagine if Tesla came out and said, oh yeah, we're uh, we're negative $9 billion of free cash flow like Intel because we're building factories. So what, when you look at it this way, even if Tesla goes slightly negative on free cash flow, it's nowhere near what some of these other companies are spending on manufacturing. Uh, and so, so it's fine. Like in the long term, again, this is what you would expect for a growing company that's ramping factories. There's nothing wrong with this. So very excited. Uh, obviously, uh, there's always some nervousness that goes into earnings as well. Not a big deal if you're a long-term holder, but you know, it, it still is a psychological thing too. You wanna see the company you're investing in is performing well. You don't wanna end up stuck with something like a Disney, where you know you invest in Disney for eight years, eight years ago last week, and uh, you know you put a hundred bucks in, and what are you left with after eight years? $76, yeah, not so great. Anyway, so that, that covers our Tesla segment. Okay, next. So, next up, crypto. Oh yeah, but I gotta take some sips of coffee first and we gotta talk about this uh, pre-motion conference on crypto. Ah, yes. Nothing like warm coffee. Oh, speaking of warm, holy crap. I was in Vegas yesterday, which was very fun. Uh, we, I, I did a day trip uh, to Vegas with, uh, with the team. And boy, it was hot. Uh, I think we spent maybe a total of 15 minutes outside. And this would be divvied up into like three minutes you know, between a store and, and your car and or whatever. Yikes. <laughs> Sorry for those of you out there right now. It is, it is quite, I mean, the cars can't even keep up well, with air conditioning. It's, it's intense. Uh, but still a fun place. All right. So let's talk crypto. All right. Okay. 
Mm -hmm. Alright, here we go. So we've got to talk uh, crypto. Earlier uh, this week, I posted, well, I guess that would be last week, I posted a video discussing uh, my thoughts on how potentially we could end up seeing a regulated crypto environment within the next year, which you know, those of you in Twitter spaces reminded me could end up aligning with the uh, Bitcoin halving and, and could end up being a really great setup for actually bringing crypto to a bullish environment rather than the crap everybody's been riding through over the last about 18 months. It's been painful, which is fantastic that, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel now. Not only this, but we've seen some SEC acceptance of Bitcoin ETF applications, suggesting that they're actually now processing these ETF applications, which is also very bullish. There is obviously the potential that all this bullishness on regulation is potentially overhyping some valuations, which once then we actually get clear regulation, maybe, and ironically, that means you see a sell down as speculators get out, but others counter offer that and say, hey, well, if speculators get out, that's okay. It'll be offset by institutions and pension funds who can now much more readily invest into crypto. So this is all fantastic news. But we've got a little bit of an update here on the SEC versus Coinbase. We've got a uh, pre-motion conference between the judge and uh, the plaintiffs and defendants. And some of the commentary from the judge is, quite frankly, fascinating. Uh, and I'm going to go through some pieces of that commentary now. Uh, so first, what I think is really incredible uh, is this discussion about uh, whether... Uh, the SEC at all has jurisdiction uh, over, uh, uh, you know, Coinbase in terms of their crypto offerings, but not just that, specifically how they determine what's a security and what not. And we've all heard this before, the Howey test. See, look at this here. The simple answer, Your Honor, about whether or not something is a security or not is the Howey analysis. And what I think is interesting here about the Howey analysis is that they reference uh, this idea that, look, we potentially look at what outside industry forces use. There's a particular council that they refer to. Here it is. Look at this. I'm going to read you this segment here. Individuals or companies to determine whether a, a crypto asset is a security need to do an analysis of crypto assets that they have allowed to trade on their platform or those that they have issued. We see that the industry does this. They have created, I believe they call it the CRC or Crypto Rating Council, where there, is a, where there are a number of market participants that have gotten together. These are like your public, it used to be BlockFi and other companies, Coinbase, uh, where a number of market participants have gotten together and they create what they call a scorecard and then they use a Howey analysis as part of that scorecard to determine how risky their crypto assets are uh, in terms of, uh, you know, sort of a scale of zero to five on what the odds are that something's going to be considered a security. And so you've got this sort of buildup of this discussion here where the SEC is saying, look, the industry is already themselves trying to figure out, hey, is something a security or not? Which is fantastic because you're seeing the industry is showing it wants to follow the law. I think this is a great setup for crypto on a regulatory basis. A great and fantastic setup and follows what I was initially 
not very optimistic about, but have become more optimistic about. The I, I've read through the ruling for uh, the Ripple case um, uh, again uh, after I last talked about it last week. It 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 reads better the more often you read it. It doesn't feel like the strongest ruling, but it's definitely great news uh, for. Uh, for the crypto community, and I think the judge has a point not to call it a security. I think the judge is right on. If anything, it'd be much more of a commodity than a security. And what's beautiful about that is, gets the SEC away from some of these offerings. The more you get the SEC away, uh, generally the less pressure you seem to have, uh, especially since the CFTC seems to be a little bit uh, less aggressive than the SEC. But take a look at this. This I thought was really incredible. In this, you start having an argument about the S1. The S1 is your initial regulatory filing to say, look, we want to take a company public like Coinbase. And here, the SEC argues that the S1 is about disclosures. And just because we let the uh, Coinbase, the company Coinbase go public, doesn't mean we approved of their entire business. They say here, the S1 is about disclosures, but I don't have everything in front of me. We can fully brief all of the legal and factual implications that go in regarding an S1 filing, but there's no way an approval of an S1 is a blessing of the company's entire business. And remember that any kind of really filing with the SEC is generally a way of the SEC saying, look, we just want to make sure everybody's following the same format, providing the right information to investors to evaluate those businesses. So initially I thought, okay, I mean, that's the argument I would expect the SEC to make here. But what I thought is really interesting here is that, listen to this. So we get the court, so the judge saying this, but I would have thought that the commission was doing diligence into what Coinbase was doing. And somehow I thought it would say, you know, you really shouldn't do this if there was a problem with something Coinbase was doing. I think this is a phenomenal hit by the judge against the SEC here. It's saying, look, if you thought the entire business model was illegal, why would you end up approving them to go public at all? But not only that, they say they make a comparison, which I think is great. I want to find it here really quick. But they make a comparison to, rightfully so, to the marijuana business. Uh, and I don't know that I can find it right now. No, it doesn't look like the search function works. Uh, but anyway, that's fine. So the comparison to the marijuana business is great because they say, look, y'all, the SEC, have frequently, the, the judge is saying this, y'all have frequently denied the listings of certain businesses like marijuana businesses because you thought that the businesses were potentially illegal. So why would you not do the same for Coinbase? Why would you approve them if you're potentially alleging what they're doing is not within the realm of the law? That was a pretty powerful point in this. Uh, I wish I could conveniently find... Ah, I got it. Yes, listen to this. This is such a great line. It's clear that the commission has repeatedly refused to review authorized registration statements for companies because of concerns about the legality of the underlying business. It has done that repeatedly with cannabis companies. It did it repeatedly with betting companies, like online betting companies. And here, the securities registration 
is the core competency of the agency. This is, by the way, a huge line. It is a huge line because the SEC or, or the judge is basically saying, look, you all don't do cannabis for a living. Well, to the extent that that's your job, maybe you do cannabis, for, <laughs> but anyway, it's not your job. Uh, and you don't do betting as your job. You do securities for a job. So here you are saying that, well, we don't know if we want to register your business because it's an online betting company or it's a cannabis business. Yet you don't give that same kind of opinion for a business that is going to potentially sell securities to retail investors. Listen to this slam right here. This is a smoker of a slam. You ready for this? So the idea that the commission could authorize the offer and sale of Coinbase's securities to millions of retail investors and then turn around and flip-flop and say, oh, sorry, you're running a completely illegal business. And it's not merely that. An S1 registration provides the very platform I'm being told violates it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it keeps going here. So anyway, they could have finished the sentence here a little bit better, got cut off a little bit here, but they're trying to make the argument that, look, how could you flip-flop on people and say, oh, it's okay to invest in Coinbase. Oh, but it's not okay. They're operating in a legal business, especially since that's your core competency. Fantastic line. Massive slam right here from the judge. Big, big win for crypto right here. Not just that, though. Ready for this? It gets fun. Where is it? Here it is. All right. There we go. So, what do we have here? Uh, so, the court says it was within the power of the SEC to say, look, you guys need to register as a securities exchange, but you didn't do that. That was within your power, but you didn't do that. In fact, the judge says, quote, I don't think anything stopped the commission from doing it. And here we go. It's not crazy, quote, for Coinbase to think that what they were doing was okay because it was exactly what you let them do when they issued their S1. That's the point I'm making. You may say that they and I are reading too much into the S issuance of the S1 end quote, but basically you can't flip-flop on people the way you're doing it here because that's the way it comes across to the investing public. This is a big piece. This was a fantastic transcript. Now, this is just a pre-motion conference. It doesn't mean anything in terms of setting a precedent. It, it doesn't really do anything, but it did set the stage here for the SEC's fight. And again, even though it's a pre-motion conference, I have to say, if, 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 you're, if you're the attorneys for the SEC, you just got your work cut out for you. The judge basically set, this, set the stage for you. The judge wants the SEC to show why do you authorize a business essentially in your mind selling securities to list publicly on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, wherever they're listed, for people to invest in on one hand. But then now, on the other hand, sue them and suggest, oh, well, you know, you, you sell unregistered securities on your platform and therefore we're coming after you. This is a little problematic. So you've got a lot of work uh, to do here for the SEC attorneys. 
and and I, I think this, I mean, that's the point of these pre-motion conferences is to really set them up. So I'm, I, I don't want to make an argument here that, hey, the SEC didn't seem prepared or, or whatever, even though it did feel like that a little bit in this. Uh, it's very likely that uh, this this is just, it's so early stage that the SEC is going to put together a much stronger and compelling argument, especially since now the groundwork has been set. But I have to say, from an outsider looking in, you can't really blame the judge for what the judge is saying here. And the entire crypto industry is looking at it going, I mean, come on, SEC. You're kind of flip-flopping here. And, you know, people don't really like flip-floppers. <laughs> anyway, uh, look... This is fantastic. We're going to keep following this uh, story. Make sure to check out the programs on Building Your Wealth. A link down below. We've got an expiration coming up in a week and two days. Uh, large price increase, big coupon expiration. That's on Fed Day. And uh, remember, we've got the Stocks and Psychology of Money group, the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing. Learn everything about wedge deals, how I went zero to millionaire, how you could do it as well. Uh, and then, of course, the How to Make More Money uh, course as an entrepreneur. It's productivity. It's AI. It's everything together or even as an employee. This is fantastic. Uh, learn about liability, insurance, LLC, side hustles, taxation, tax strategies and ideas. It's fantastic. Check those all out. Linked down below. Okay, so uh, that covers our uh, crypto segment. So we've got Empire Manufacturing. We've got the Tesla preview. We've got uh, crypto. And let's take a look at how El Primarketo is doing over here. So uh, NASDAQ actually just went green. We've got uh, Ford cutting the price of its electric F-150 by as much as $10,000. Uh, it's actually surprising to see that uh, from uh, Ford, given that Ford was arguing... I mean, look, Ford hides behind the dealership model, right? So they can build a lot of their dealership, uh, or, or should I say their price cuts into the dealership model with advertising reimbursements. So... This seems wild, but here's how it would work. Let's say you sell a lightning pickup truck for $100,000. You're going to recognize revenue at $100,000. Then you're going to go to cost of goods sold. And let's say it costs you $60,000 to manufacture the car. Okay, well, now you have a gross profit of $40,000. That's a very large number, okay? It's, it's, it's probably much smaller. Well, it's going to be, it's going to be negative for them. But just to make you an example here, let's say you have a gross profit of $40,000. That makes you look extremely profitable. It makes you look like you have a 40% gross margin on these vehicles, right? But what Ford likes to do, I believe, my opinion, but I'm pretty sure this is exactly what they do, is they bury the price cuts into the OPEX segment, which is the selling, general, and administrative portion. And in there, they might say, well, we actually gave the person who bought that Ford a $50,000 discount via the dealer. We spent that $50,000 giving the dealership incentives. They were able to sell the car for less. And now all of a sudden it looks like we're just advertising really well. And we have these cars selling at a 40% gross profit. But wait a minute. If you actually align that $50,000 in extra selling with the price of the car and the cost of the car, now all of a sudden you're negative 10K, right? 100K, 40K gross profit. You put 50K into selling, oh dear. And if you actually accounted for that appropriately, you'd be negative 10 grand on that sale. So that's how you could go from that profit margin to a lie and then realizing there's no profit margin. It's just an extreme example, obviously. Uh, I mean, if any car manufacturer got to 40% gross profit, it'd be pretty incredible. Maybe Tesla will one day. Uh, hey, you include FSD, it's probably 
It's probable, actually. But anyway, uh, let's take a... Uh, uh, so this, so that's, it's just something to know about the Ford stuff. It's all... Uh, I like to call it a riot. <laughs> but uh, that's all right. So uh, pre-market here, it looks like uh, you've got actually Tesla going into earnings here up 2%. Uh, and uh, earnings, obviously, on Wednesday. We've got uh, Nikola down 4%. They had a nice little squeeze there last week. So uh, you really ran up to over 2 bucks. They were 50 cents not that long ago. So a lot of these rolling squeezes we keep seeing. Ford's only down about 1.4% after the uh, the price cut announcement, though that probably isn't too much of a surprise. Uh, okay, good. So now let's take a peek over here and see what else we have. We have this. Uh, JPM, 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 JPM piece. Ooh, no, actually... Let's jump in. Okay. Stand by for Kevin to figure out what he wants to cover next. Uh, we already talked about the grain deal. We talked break-evens. We talked Fed. Uh, you've got the suits here suggesting this might be a week for consolidation. Uh, I don't know about that. We'll see. Let's see here. Ooh. We went through this already, but Empire Survey shows lowest inflation gauge in three years. It's pretty good. Break-evens may be near a bottom despite disinflation trend. This is because they're trying to say that oil could end up propping up break-evens. We'll see. Pricey luxury stocks. Luxury stocks could end up getting hit thanks to a weak China. So watch out, LVMH. They're coming for you. A new S&P 500 record by the end of the year is not far-fetched. Last week's price action sets the S&P 500 up to climb to a new record. Gage rose 2.4% for the week, largely boosted by an over 2% fall in the dollar, blah, blah, blah. Now back to within 7% of its intraday record. Wow. Anyway, some of the moves that we're seeing uh, historically, uh, when they look at some leading indicators here, suggest the S&P 500 could climb an average of 8.7% over the next six months. Ooh, fancy. All right, you suits. All right, what else do we have here? Then we've got, let's see, I saved a little bit here. I wanted to go through some of this. So talked about the Ukraine deal. Yeah, the China slowdown was pretty wild. And, uh, oh, this was interesting. Citigroup's Ed Morse warns that oil bulls are wrong to jump in now. Oil bulls moving back into the market are making a big mistake according to one of Wall Street's most prominent forecasters. Crude futures jumped to above 80 bucks a barrel in London last week for the first time in two months on signs of rising demand, an economy not going into recession essentially, right? And OPEC supply cuts that are finally causing the market to tighten. But a Citigroup suggests this is just an artificial veneer of tightness as output curbs by Saudi Arabia and its partners camouflage the absence of solid demand recovery in China, the world's biggest oil importer. It's interesting. So basically making the argument that, hey, be careful going uh, super bullish here on oil because China is going to be your delicious anchor. Which, remember, China being an anchor to inflation is actually, to some extent, great uh, because it, it really can help prove that we're probably more likely to be facing deflation within the next few years than, uh, than runaway inflation. Knock on wood, we do not want to see runaway inflation. Bid by Tom says, looking forward to the course member live stream. Heck yeah. 
course member live stream coming up uh, in a few minutes. In fact, I am going to head there after this cup of coffee. So folks, thank you for jumping into another Meet Kevin Report. Uh, tomorrow we'll bring somebody else in again from Twitter Spaces. Uh, I hope to start a little earlier tomorrow again. So uh, if you ever want to chat, make sure you have your Twitter Spaces on for a request to chat. And uh, we'll, we'll give that a shot tomorrow. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you in the next Meet Kevin Report. Goodbye.